0: Welcome to the NASPP's Equity Expert podcast series. My name is Kathleen Cleary, and I'm the Education Director for the NASPP. Today, I'll be discussing IRS Notice 2018-68, which was issued on August 21st, 2018, and I'll be talking with Mike Melvinger of Winston and Strawn. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this podcast is actually one of a series of podcasts on various interesting and educational topics, primarily related to equity and careers in equity. You can access the entire podcast series at naspp.com forward slash equity expert, and that's all one word. And you can also subscribe to the podcast series, and then you'll get an email every time we post a new episode. So that's a great way to get stay caught up on the latest. As I mentioned, I'm here with Mike Melbinger of Winston & Strawn. He's a partner in the Executive Compensation and Benefits Practice of Winston and & Strawn, and he's an adjunct professor of law at both the University of Illinois Chicago College of Law, Northwestern University School of Law as well. He's the author of Melbinger's compensation blog, for compensationstandards.com and the author of the CCH Treatise on Executive Compensation, now in its second edition. Also, the American Bankers Association Compliance Guide to Benefit Trusts, and more than 75 articles on executive compensation and employee benefits. He's on the editorial boards of the Corporate Executive and Practical Tax Strategies, and he is a frequent speaker at industry events. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks so much for being here today.
1: Well, thank you, Kathleen, for having me
0: very happy to have you and shed some light on this recent notice. So I mentioned earlier the IRS issued the notice 2018-68 on August 21st. What was the general purpose of this notice?
1: Well, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 signed into law last December significantly broadened the application of and narrowed the exceptions to the $1 million deduction limit of Code Section 162M. First and most significantly, the act eliminated the performance-based compensation exception from 162M. And as most listeners know, the performance-based compensation exception was far and away the most frequently used and most helpful exception for companies. It allowed companies nationwide to deduct tens to hundreds of millions of dollars in compensation expense each year. And the act eliminated that effective in 2018. The act also explicitly extended Section 162M's limit to a company's CFO, uh, or as 162M and the notice refer to it, the principal financial officer or PFO, but we're going to call it CFO. Under prior law, only the CEO and the next three highest... Ag- Paid executive officers of the company, excluding the CFO, were covered employees. Then, to make matters worse, the Act amended 162M to provide that any individual who is treated as a covered employee for any taxable year beginning after December 31, 2016, will continue to be considered a covered employee with respect to that company. For so long as the company is providing compensation to him or her, whether he or she is an employee or a former employee. And that's called the once a covered employee, always a covered employee rule. Previously, 162M only applied to individuals who were named executive officers on the last day of the tax year, the year in which the company sought deduction. So if a CEO retired or terminated uh, December 1st of the year, that individual is not a covered employee. That's not the rule anymore. One good thing about the act, and it's not a very good thing, but it did provide an exception to the application of 162M's hard and fast million dollar deduction limit that we refer to as the grandfather exception. Until, as you say, a couple weeks ago in August, the biggest mystery of 2018 was how the IRS would interpret the grandfather w- rule and, and how it would allow companies to deduct compensation promised before 2018 that's paid in 2018 and after. So now our waiting is over and we can get to work so mike we just talked a little bit about the new definition
0: of covered employee i think we've given our listeners a pretty good picture of that i understand that the notice also made some amendments to the definition of a publicly held corporation so which companies are considered publicly held under the new guidance
1: well you're right the act also extended 162m's limit to any company that files sec reports including a company that issues debt securities to the public, but not stock. For example, companies that are required to file a 10K, but not an annual proxy statement. And there's many large companies that are in that position. The act also extends the deduction limit to certain foreign corporations that are publicly traded through ADRs or ADSs. So we've got a whole new batch included in this limit.
0: Great. I think that's helpful for uh, companies to know whether or not this might apply to them. So you mentioned the grandfathering rule and I recall when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act initially amended 162M in 2017, there was a lot of confusion about that grandfathering rule. So did this recent guidance help to clarify?
1: Yes. The grandfathering rule, which I briefly alluded to earlier, was uh, given to us as an exception to the, the harsh 162M amendments. So the new harsher version of 162M and now I'm quoting, will not apply to remuneration which is provided pursuant to a written binding contract, which was in effect on November 2nd, 2017, and which was not modified in any material respect after such date. End quote. So the old and more favorable 162M rules on deductibility will continue to apply for these grandfathered amounts and payments. Now, most public companies have entered into employment agreements with their senior executive officers. Some companies may have entered into changing control agreements or severance agreements or some other type of promise, even an offer letter, which could be a binding promise. And many senior executives participated in a non-qualified deferred compensation plan or a SERP that was in place before November 2nd, 2017. So there's a, a fairly wide variety of plans and agreements that may be covered by the grandfather rule. But As I indicated, I think, the IRS interpretation of the grandfather rule is unexpectedly harsh. It does provide many uh, illustrative examples. I don't want to say helpful because most of them turn out badly for us. They are illustrative for the payments that may or may not be grandfathered, and it's very much dependent on the individual facts. So the first step for companies is to determine whether or not and the extent to which any of its existing plans and agreements create a legally enforceable obligation to pay compensation under applicable law, assuming the employee performs the requisite services. The notice clarifies that this, well, generally will be state contract law, but the notice does not limit applicable law solely to state law. So you need to have a a view of what types of laws might be there to uh, cause this agreement to be enforceable, and you probably need counsel for that determination. Additionally, the obligation, the promise, the written binding obligation will only be considered legally binding to the extent of the amount stated in the contract, and any payment in excess of the amount will not be grandfathered. So, just to give an example, i'm going to use some examples, and these are more or less right out of the regs, a little out of the notice, I mean a little bit modified uh, So, if you have a bonus plan established in 2017 right, like most companies did or do, and the bonus plan will pay the CEO a cash bonus of one point five million if a specified performance goal is satisfied. Right? This is designed to be performance-based compensation. But the plan provides that the compensation committee retains the right to reduce the payment to not less than $400,000, even if the performance goals are met. Well, then in 2018, the compensation committee meets and decides to pay the CEO a bonus of $1.2 million. Unfortunately, in this example, only $400,000, the bare minimum of the $1.2 million payment is deductible because the the contract was only legally enforceable as to $400,000. So that's unfortunate, but it it emphasizes how this legal determination of whether and the extent to which an arrangement is a legally binding contract and how long it remains in effect uh, is really critical. Another unexpectedly harsh interpretation of the grandfather rule under the notice is that a legally binding contract that is considered renewed after November 2nd, 2017 is considered to be materially modified and therefore kicked out of the grandfather rule. So again, for example, let's say your CFO is a party to a three-year employment agreement providing an annual salary of $2 million beginning January 1, 2017. Okay, well within the grandfathered date. The terms of the agreement provide for an automatic extension at the end of the three-year term for additional one-year periods unless either party gives written notice to the other that it wishes to terminate the contract before the end of the three-year period. Okay, that's very typical. In this case, the CFO's annual salary of 2 million dollars for 2018 and 2019, right, which are before the end of the 3-year term, would not be subject to 162m. Would not be subject to the limit. They're grandfathered. However, the employment agreement will be treated as renewed on January 1, 2020, if neither even if neither party takes any action, it's automatically treated as renewed on that date, and therefore 162M would apply to any payments made in 2020 or later. Another point, I kind of snuck in two points on this example, because you'll notice this was the CFO not the CEO, right? So salary paid to a CEO would never have been grandfathered from the million-dollar deductibility limit. But the CFO was not a covered employee under prior law. So this promise to a CFO, even though not performance-based compensation, is still deductible under the grandfather exception as long as the contract's not materially modified. Now, there are some exceptions to the renewal rule that would not cause a contract to fall outside the grandfather rule. Those are, they're limited and they involve a little bit more time than we, uh, more detail than we have time for. So let's, let's keep going on this point. Another interesting twist, and this time it's actually a helpful one, is that while a legally binding written contract must have been in effect as of November 2nd, 2017, the employee did not have to be eligible to participate as of that date, as long as he or she was actually employed. Now, what does that mean? It's a lot easier if I give another example here. So you have an individual who signed a new employment agreement to be CFO of a new company, October 1, 2017. As part of the new employment agreement, the CFO was promised participation in the new company's non-qualified deferred compensation plan beginning January 1, 2018. And as a make-up payment, right, to attract the CFO, the new company promised a starting balance in the non-qualified plan of $3 million. Now, that's not unusual, the amount I picked out of the air, but promising a make-whole payment is frankly, very typical with senior executives. Okay, so the CFO had a legally binding right to that amount, the $3 million before November 2nd, and it will be grandfathered, even though... The CFO didn't actually participate in the plan until after November second. Just to I guess follow that to the conclusion. Suppose then four or five years down the road, the CFO's account balance grows to four point five million and that is distributed. Only the three million dollars will be grandfathered and deductible duct- by the company. So non-qualified plans are really one of the two best bets for companies to find grandfathered compensation amounts. But even here, see, every time I give good news, I have to give some bad news because that's the way this notice is. So even though you've got a nice non-qualified deferred compensation plan you think is grandfathered, the notice kind of cuts you off at the pass here. And here's why. Every non-qualified plan I have ever seen Provides that the company may amend, modify, or terminate the plan at any time to halt accruals or reduce the amount of future accruals or contributions to the plans. Right, at any time in its discretion, except that the company cannot amend the plan to reduce or deprive a current participant of any currently accrued benefit or balance. That's just the way they all read. So the problem is under the notice, this Commonplace, actually ubiquitous, more than commonplace, reservation of rights to the company has a significant adverse effect, if, frankly, because it, it halts and puts a cap on the amount of the grandfathered benefit as of the date the company could have froze the plan. Uh, Again, an example to help illustrate this. So you've got a non-qualified deferred comp plan. The company is crediting $100,000 to its CEO's account every year. Of course, the plan provides that standard language that the company may amend the plan to halt future contributions at any time in its discretion. So in December 2015, 2016, each time it credited the $100,000. In December 2017, it again credits $100,000 and so on going forward. Eventually, the plan pays the CFO $700,000. Problem is, this plan only constitutes a written binding contract to pay the first two $100,000 contributions that had been made before November 2nd, 2017, right? Because the, the, the company could have froze the benefit as of November 3rd, 2017, and there wouldn't have been that next $100,000 contributed. So that's the, the drawback for non-qualified plans. Just one more point on this, and I'm sorry, I'm kind of rambling on here, but the other one of the last of those two best benefits, remember I said the two best bets for finding grandfathered compensation protection, is awards made or payments promised before November 2nd, 2017, that were designed to be performance-based. Okay, so these would still be deductible. For example, a performance share award made in early 2017 that was intended to be performance-based would it ultimately vests and pays out should still be deductible by the company.
0: All right, Mike. Well, good news and bad news. It's not your fault you didn't write the notice. And I think the only good news out of the IRS is that you're getting a big, fat refund, right? But Anyway, I digress. So, uh, one of the things you discuss with the grandfathering rule is modification. So, for companies that might have made a material modification to their plan or to an award, what should they be prepared for?
1: Well, companies should attempt to avoid material modification at all costs, because at best. It halts the application of the grandfather rule. And depending on what type of modification, it may even prevent otherwise grandfathered amounts from being protected. So the key is what is a material modification and what is not. And the the notice provides some guidance on that. Essentially, a material modification is one that increases the amount of the compensation payable or accelerates the amount of compensation unless the acceleration is reasonably discounted for the time value of money. Now, if a contract is modified to defer payment, any increase that is simply a reasonable rate of interest would not be considered a material modification. So again, let me give an example here because it's, well, this one I think nicely explains or illustrates what is and isn't a material modification. So suppose you've got a CFO with a five-year employment agreement in January 2017, right before the effective date. The agreement provides a salary of $1.8 million per year. In 2018, of course, the CFO suddenly became a covered employee as a result of the amendments to 162M. So then... Let's say going forward, by coincidence, the company increases the CFO's compensation in 2019 with a supplemental payment of $40,000 and then increases it again in 2020 with a salary increase of from $1.8 to $2.4 million. What's the difference between those two amounts? And it's key here. The $1.8 is paid under a written binding contract to a CFO. Remember, the CFO was not a covered employee, so it continues as grandfathered. The question is, what about the increases in 2019 and 2020? Well, the $40,000 increase does not count as a material modification because it's approximately equal to a reasonable cost of living increase from twenty seventeen, according at least to the regulations. I didn't check the math. However, that increase to two point four million is a material modification, the increase in salary, because that additional amount is, as they say, paid on the basis of substantially the same elements or conditions as the compensation that is otherwise paid pursuant to the written binding contract, but greater than a reasonable annual cost of living increase. So it's complicated and unfortunately may not come out completely clearly based on that limited example, but hopefully that provides some guidance. Additionally, now, okay, here's an important distinction too, by the way. Remember I said, this. now this increase is in a material modification, so not even the originally promised 1.8 is grandfathered, okay? The whole salary is now included because it was materially modified. If the company had instead made, let's say, a separate restricted stock grant of the amount of the increase in salary, which was what, $560,000, that 560 would be subject to the deduction limit, but the 1.8 could still be grandfathered because it wasn't materially modified. So, hopefully, I shouldn't say hopefully, you should be sufficiently confused to see that this is really a close call and you really got to take care on material modifications.
0: Well, I think my takeaway, Mike, is material modifications
1: just don't do it. Just say no to material modifications. (laughs) I think we've kind of
0: talked around it a little bit but let's be specific. Should companies be taking any particular action to
1: ensure that they preserve this grandfathering protection that's allowed? Uh, yes, that's that's the key, well, one of the two key tasks for 2018. The first one is steps to preserve whatever you can under grandfathering and the second of course is to contemplate redesigning your compensation to mitigate the now lost deduction. So what you need to do to to preserve grandfathering is you you first basically have to inventory all compensation plans policies and agreements So remember i started out talking about severance plans and employment agreements and change of control agreements and non-qualified plans short-term incentive plans long-term incentive plans anything that could be a written binding contract in effect on or before november 2nd 2017. you've got to collect all those and you've got a list all employees covered by them. Now, importantly, it's not just your NEOs because you may have a non-qualified plan promise of dollars for some mid-management employee who 10 years from now, maybe five years from now, will grow into an NEO. And you sure would like to have that pre-November 2nd deferred compensation account grandfathered. So you need to keep track of every dollar of every participant that might be grandfathered. It's not that hard. It's just, you know, it's paperwork. Let's see. So that's the first, I guess, actually two steps. You may need to get, and this is related, you may you, know, you probably need to get some legal advice on the extent to which each plan and agreement creates a legally binding obligation, right? The accountants are going to ask you to predict what's deductible and what's not deductible in 2018 and in 2019, and you're going to have to give them an answer. So somebody's got to do that, right? It could be inside counsel, outside, outside counsel, anybody, but you're going to have to take a close look to see not just that it was in existence on November 2nd, but the extent to which it protects amounts. Next, how long? How long does it protect amounts? Then you put a big red flag on all these plan documents and say, do not make any changes or amendments or any compensation increases under these without carefully considering whether it's a material modification. You might want to start an entirely new non-qualified deferred comp plan, for example, uh, which is something we did for 49A, right, to grandfather the old amounts. So, you know, not rocket science. Next, you do need to continue to maintain your compensation committee solely of outside directors, right? That was a a requirement for performance-based compensation is that the comp committee be made up solely of outside directors. Well, some companies think that's gone. Performance-based compensation is gone. We can do whatever we want. Well, that's not actually true because you may have a grandfathered performance-based compensation award that the committee will still have to certify in 2019, 2020. And therefore, you need to uh, keep those folks got it so let me just ask you
0: as we begin to wind up the podcast going forward are there maybe some design strategies that companies should be thinking about maybe implementing a new design strategy to mitigate the loss of the tax deduction
1: yes Uh, I think every company every public company in America that's now subject to this harsher rule, needs to at least consider whether to make some changes. And they may decide not to. It's just not worth the effort. And they really like their current compensation plan. But there are some things to consider. And honestly, there's not a lot because this rule is pretty tight. So I've come up with nine possibilities so far, and they're they're pretty detailed, and we really don't have time to, to analyze them, but I'll, but I'll read them and say maybe one or two words. Number one is the automatic or voluntary deferral of RSUs or annual bonus payments. Now, remember, non-qualified plan promises, so essentially, right, if you defer an RSU or an annual bonus, it essentially becomes non-qualified deferred comp. Well, it won't be grandfathered because it was just done this year. However, if it's put aside till after termination of employment, still won't be grandfathered because of the once an employee, always a covered employee rule, but... At least then you can spread it out over a large number of years, hopefully get that dollar amount down below $1 million per year of distribution. And by the way, ISS and investors should love this deferral concept because it really enhances the the clawback and forfeiture ability of a company and more closely links executives to uh, the long-term performance of the company. So that's a whole separate benefit. Next, just a good old-fashioned non-qualified deferred compensation plan or a SERP, right? You don't have to have an automatic or voluntary deferral. You can just simply have any deferrals or any SERP plan promise you have in place. Again, not automatically deductible, but some may be grandfathered, and the rest we can ideally structure to reduce the amounts below a $1 million per year. Uh, if you have a qualified plan, there's something we call, and I blogged on this, I, well, we didn't name it, but it's called a qualified SERP switch or SERP swap or, or even a Q SERP, where you basically convert some benefits promised under the non qualified plan into a benefit promised under a qualified plan. And qualified plan distributions are not subject to 162M. Let's see. Another good one is, uh, well, Code Section 409A, for those who are really deep in the weeds, may recall that there are two special exceptions to 409A's deferral rules that allow an automatic postponement, that is, without any election by anybody, of amounts that the company thought would be deductible under 162M, but turned out not to be. Okay, so that's completely legal and right there in the law. Uh, ISOs, right? ISOs. Well, ISOs don't really provide a deduction, so it may not actually mitigate it, but as long as a company is not getting a deduction anyway, why not give the employees very favorable tax treatment under incentive stock options? Uh, And even qualified stock options that are not grandfathered, right? Remember, some will be qualified performance-based compensation and grandfathered. But those that aren't, the company and the executive can talk about it and perhaps coordinate the exercise of those awards to, again, spread out gain over a longer period of time. So it's below a million dollars. And then the last possibility is new code section 199A for which we could have another two-hour podcast talking about, but basically it, it creates a special deduction for pass-through entities, like an LLC, well, wait a minute, we're talking about public companies here, aren't we? Well, yes, we are, but some public companies can have an LLC somewhere in the chain from which they could pay some compensation They would qualify for 199A and therefore help out with deductibility.
0: Well, Mike, I think that you've given our listeners an awful lot of information today. I think maybe clarified some things or maybe even caused our listeners to have some questions that they know they need to go and get answers to. And that's always a good thing as well. So I just want to let our listeners know that Mike will be speaking on this topic and others at our NESPP 26th Annual Conference, which begins on September 25th in San Diego, California. And... Mike's session will be hot topics in equity compensation. So uh, you can get more information and meet Mike and speak with him in person there. We will also actually have an attorney speaking who assisted in authoring Notice 2018 68. So you can get more information at that session as well. So, Mike, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate you sharing all your knowledge and expertise with our listeners. Look forward to seeing you and hearing you speak at our annual conference. If anyone needs any more information on the annual conference, just go to naspp.com. You'll find all the information there. Thanks to everyone who listened today. And remember, you can also access all the podcasts in the Equity Expert series at naspp.com forward slash Equity Expert. Final words, Mike?
1: Nothing but thank you, Kathleen, for having me.
0: And thanks, Mike. Really appreciate your time.